Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last week, members of Congress tried to revive an Obama-era effort to make Harriet Tubman the new face of the $20 bill. A new historical novel about Tubman gives us a whole other face and consideration of the woman known as the Moses of her people. Tubman, who escaped slavery and established an underground railroad network to free others, may also have been Harriet the Spy. Historian and best-selling author Elizabeth Cobbs dives into Tubman's involvement as a nurse and scout serving the Union Army during a critical point of the Civil War. The Tubman Command is a novel imagining Tubman's role as the first African-American woman to serve in the military. And Elizabeth Cobbs is going to be discussing the book at the DeKalb Historical Society this Wednesday. Elizabeth Cobbs, welcome. Thank you so much, Virginia. Harriet Tubman, definitely one of those giant figures whose story bears repeating over and over. So briefly, can you tell us what we know of her early life and escape from a Maryland plantation? Yes. Well, she was a young woman. She was 27. She was married, which I think a lot of uh, people don't realize. Um, And she wanted her husband to go with her, and he would not. He was actually a free man. And so it's it's, it's one of these, as love is always complicated, right? She wants him to go, but he doesn't want to leave everything he knows. And so she escapes by herself and on her own. And she gets to freedom, and she's 27, it's 1849, you know, long before anybody knows there will be a civil war that slavery will ever end. You know, and there's no knowledge of that. And, um, and she gets to freedom, and she sort of looks at herself and looks at her hands and thinks, you know, how can I, what is it like to be free and have no one you love with you? And to know that everyone you love, especially her, her biological family, her brothers and sisters and mother and father, are trapped. You know, they're behind, they're in chains, um, just, you know, 100 miles away or whatever. And so she decides to go back. And that's what leads Harriet Tubman to become such a famous figure. She goes back. We don't know exactly how many times because every time it was a crime. You know, she could have been thrown into jail. She could have been imprisoned for life. She could sold back into slavery, placed back into slavery, I should say. But she, she's the only person we know of in American history, who went back so many times as she did, who freed so many people and was never captured. There's some people who had gone back several times but were ultimately captured. So she's the only person who does this and who gets away. So she's a consummate escape artist. Mm. Um, And she sets up, as you just said, this network. Um, She works with others who are in part of this larger effort of the Underground Railroad. But she essentially gets people from Maryland, which is the area she knows best and knows like the back of her hand over time, and smuggles them out again and again and again to Canada and New York. But then the crazy thing here is, you know, a lot of abolitionists, once the war breaks out, you know, they do what sensible people do. They let the armies do what armies do, which is to fight it out. But Harriet Tubman goes back. But now she has left, and in, in the book opens, it's May of 1863. She's in South Carolina, low country. How did she get there? Well, she goes there in 1862, and then in 1863, she's planning this raid. And you know what? So this is interesting. She's sent. She's sent by the governor of Massachusetts, 
who writes, you know, on her behalf and basically says the government needs to pay for this woman's travel down to South Carolina. And he recommends her to the to the man who is the general of the occupied sea islands of of, uh, South Carolina. So these are all occupied or, you know, the ones that the union is in control of. Um, David Hunter is the commander of those. And she's recommended to Hunter as a valuable woman. Now, Virginia, I know about you, but I've never been recommended as a governor of anything as a valuable woman, you know, who who needs to be listened to. (laughs) Not yet. Okay. Well, that's true. Um, So she goes and, and she's there for a bit over a year before we believe she was, you know, placed in charge of planning this raid or initiated the raid. Uh, and in fact, the word initiated is um, is the term that's used by a reporter at the time who, who looks upon the events. This is a crucial point in the war. Give us a sense of what's going on strategically in the battle uh, between the North and the South. Why this location, the South Carolina Sea Islands, considered critical to the Union? Yeah, today we would think of this perhaps as a backwater, a quiet, quiet spot. But at the time, uh, you know, no one thought the North was going to win. Even Northerners, most Northerners did not think the North would win. Keep in mind, uh, Virginia, that the South is bigger than all of Europe. Hmm. So consider that. You know, how is how is a country going to keep another hypothetical country, all the size of Europe, you know, in its grasp. And so the one of the key things they have to do is to blockade the Confederacy to the extent possible because, you know, countries in Europe think this is not going to work out. They're supplying both sides. And so blockade runners are trying to supply the South with uniforms and, you know, guns and gunpowder and all the things that the South has in such limited supply and can't mostly produce for itself. And so they have to have the, a base for that navy, and it's struggling. Oh my gosh! So this is the this is the deepest pit, you might say, of the Civil War. You know, hundreds of thousands have already died. There's no end in sight. So this is before Vicksburg and Gettysburg, which some listeners will know is the big are the big turning points in the war. Um, and so it looks like the North is going to lose. And it's at this point that Harriet Tubman begins to plan a raid. A daring raid, an unheard of kind of expedition by black soldiers. Um, Ultimately, there will be two American gunships that she helps to lead up the Cumbie River, 25 miles into what was then known as enemy territory, if you were a Union officer. Well, you mentioned that she was described by the governor as a valuable woman. But th- let's think, you know, you describe her as a five foot slender woman, disabled. She did receive a terrible head injury where she was beaten uh, as a child that forever affected her. She's often photographed, extremely recognizable, $12,000 bounty on her head. Why would she be a good candidate for a spy to lead a, or a scout to lead a mission like this? You know, for the very reasons you said, she's five foot tall. She's a tiny little thing, like a strong wind might blow her away. And she looks kind of like nobody, but she must have had one of these faces that's very changeable. She was described, by the way, as good looking, fine looking, I should say, on her um, runaway notice, which meant that she was a pretty woman. Uh, And perhaps when she smiled, she was particularly so. But she was also very good at disguise. And I think that people tend to think, you know, a small woman, what's that? You know, she's nothing, uh, whatever. Um, And she she was able to get in and out of places that someone else would have been, you know, stopped and accosted and sort of, you know, in some way checked. Um, And keep in mind, we know her photographs. We know what she looks like. But she, she wasn't photographed at the time. The photograph we now have 
photograph has only been recently discovered of her when she was about right after the Civil War, so around the age that she was in the in the time of the novel. And um, and so her face wasn't known. And keep in mind, yes, you're right. She went by the code name, we might say, Moses. So it wasn't known. Some people might have thought she was a man. Well, you have written several historical books and another historical novel, The Hamilton Affair, about Alexander Hamilton and his uh, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton. So this is a novel, right? What What is the true historical record here, and why are you writing it as a novel? What does that allow you to do? Yeah, that's it's such a fabulous question. I, you know, I, I have eight books. This is my eighth book, and five of them are nonfiction. So I mostly have written in nonfiction, as most professional historians do. Um, but I wanted, in the case of actually both Alexander Hamilton, and by the way, I, I always am conscious that people are going to think, this must have been some cheesy ripoff of Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I actually wrote the novel. You were there first. <laughs> I was there first, but then my novel came out just as he was collecting all the Tony Awards, so I was very happy about the timing. Probably didn't um, hurt. <laughs> it did not hurt, right. Um, as as you said, it was a bestseller, so I was very grateful to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Thank you, sir. Uh, but I feel that with history... Historians can tell us uh, exactly what the facts are, and historians are not allowed and should never, by our professional standards, make up a single thing. We can't invent a cloud in the sky or, or certainly anything anybody says because dialogue is unrecorded in history. Nobody sits around recording our dialogue. We might have a letter, but we don't know what people said or what they felt on a different on a particular day. But especially in, in relation to um, important people in history about whom we don't have a lot – uh, of a lot of facts, it's kind of what what the fiction allows us to do is to sort of imagine the the plausible scenarios in between the app, the known facts. I like to say that fiction lights the dark corners of the evidence. Mm. And in relation to women, um, this is particularly helpful because most women's lives are very lightly documented. And so what we know about someone like Harriet Tubman is from other people um, who observed her. She was illiterate, so she never wrote her own. She did not write um, her own memoirs. She had commissioned somebody to do that. But we, we don't hear about her in her own voice. Mm. And so if we want to try to think about what Harriet Tubman sounded like. If we want to, you know, walk in her shoes, then this is something that fiction allows us to do. And I'm very conscious as a historian of making sure that it's done in ways that are absolutely consistent with every known fact. What is known about the Cumbie Raid, uh, we have, by the way, one paragraph on it from its commander, <laughs> who wrote one paragraph to his commanding officer saying, basically, sir, it went well. Mm. We captured, um, pardon me, we freed 756 enslaved people. You know, we burned Confederate plantations, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we know. And he said, I'll write you more later, which he never did, because it was wartime. It was the middle of the Civil War. So um, they scout up this river that, by the way, is not only defended by artillery and by uh, sentinels, you know, rifle riflemen aligning in different spots along the banks, but there are also underwater mines. And so this is one of the ways that the South very successfully, uh, you know, the Confederate South, I should say, because I think when we say the South, you know, we tend to think we're talking about the white South. But, you know, there's the other half of the South, which is the South. And uh, and there are the folks who are being kept in, um, kept in slavery. So, you know, one half of the South is armed and they're pointing their guns not only at the North, but the, at their own population, tragically. 
So, um, you know, they're trying to get up this river, and, uh, and that's what the book is about is, you know, how do they do it? And I think that fiction kind of allows us to walk through and see how it could have happened exactly. My guest is historian and author Elizabeth Cobbs. Her latest novel, The Tubman Command, comes out tomorrow. She's going to be speaking about it at the DeKalb Historical Society Indicator on Wednesday. Well, I want to pick up on that idea of she thinks at one point to herself in the novel, no one thinks anyone called Moses has a personal life, right? So you are rounding out the character. She's got a history. She has a husband that she left behind. Um, There are plenty of quotes about her. But we don't know how she thinks about her own life. And you write at one point, Harriet Tubman's idea of marriage came from Mama, who thought that that's how matrimony worked. You know, if she was a good wife and Daddy was a strong man, they would be together forever. But Harriet knew that marriage was like a bizarre children's game. Uh, why? Why did you want to start at this point of of telling a story about the complications of her own romantic unions. Well, I wanted to understand better and portray what motivated Harriet Tubman. You know, we think of someone, well, they're just born a hero, right? Okay, great. They're born a hero. I wasn't good. I don't have to <laughs> I don't have to act heroically in my own life, right? Um, but what motivates someone who who chooses again and again to do these heroic things? And, and I thought, you know, one way to do that is to, you know, walk and try to walk into her own heart. And I think partly it's like in a way we don't want our women leaders to have personal lives hmm. because that disqualifies them as leaders. It's sort of like men can have these family things on the side and, you know, that's not, that's not really in the way of what they're going to do in life. And for women, you know, we sort of strip out those parts of the story. If we think a woman is heroic, then we want them to be the virginal Joan of Arc. <laughs> it's okay. She's burned at the stake. Hey, she does good stuff. <laughs> um, but with Harriet Tubman, I mean, here's a woman who, you know, who was married twice, both times to men um, who apparently found her absolutely irresistible. Uh, her first husband, as I mentioned, was a free man, and he lived in a part of the South, the Upper South, where half of the African-American population was free and half was enslaved. Talk about complicated lives. And so he could have, you know, found another woman to marry, but apparently he decided to marry a woman who was so in love with her that he was willing to court and marry a woman who, by whom he would have slave children, and they wouldn't belong to him. Uh, so that what a tremendous sacrifice that would be for any man to make. And then she left him because <laughs> she wanted freedom. So that's kind of where the novel starts is how she feels about having left him and then knowing that after she leaves, he takes another wife. And she is praised by those who are her commanders or who work with her. There's a quote in the book from Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson talking about what was at risk for her in this mission. But, you know, she was also she was serving as the first African-American we, woman we know of. Is that correct in, in the military service? Yes. Um, you know, I think that there are some evidence that uh, there were, you know, and of course there were women who had various, you know, roles. Nurses and, or you know, cooks or Nurses. Whatever, in right. fact, uh, she, there was one of the, a woman there who was a black nurse who was served with the first South Carolina. But, you know, we think for sure she would have been absolutely the first black woman ever in command. Uh, as she was. And in fact, she petitioned after her service, her military service, for a military pension. 
and she detailed her service and uh, the men over whom she had command. She listed them by name. By the way, so she, curious fact here, um, one of the men she lists by name, and there's no indication she ever stayed in touch with him, I and mean, there's just a list of people she commanded. He later uh, petitioned after the war of the U.S. Congress and was granted a petition as a scout. Hmm. Now, by the way, he got his, his scout, um, uh, scout pension about two or three years after the war was over. Harriet Tubman petitioned 30 years, hmm. 30 years, supported by congressmen, supported by American generals, supported by... Uh, American colonels, uh, and of course supported by the abolitionist community for her um, pension. She was finally granted it after 30 years and in the category of nurse, which was about less than half of the pension pay of a scout. So not as a scout. Well, Elizabeth Cobbs, I'm sorry to let you go, but we have to close. And I'm thinking there are so many books written about this tiny, fierce, remarkable woman. But telling this story as a novel and giving her... I don't know. In the popular imagination, uh, it's enough to be an abolitionist hero, right? But a spy, you know, a scout, somebody who did this furtive mission gives it a whole different luster. And and I'm wondering if you can reach different audiences than you might with a nonfiction historical tome. Absolutely. No, I mean, I want people who go to the beach... (laughs) I want people who are sitting in their bathtubs, right, who are reading, can't stop reading and, you know, can't turn out the light at night and have to keep going. I think fiction reaches a different part of our brains and a different part of our hearts. I want the world to know why Harriet Tubman should be on the $20 bill. She's our most outstanding female patriot in American history. Historian and author Elizabeth Cobbs, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Elizabeth's latest novel, The Tubman Command, comes out tomorrow, and she's going to be speaking at the DeKalb Historical Society Indicator on Wednesday. There are details at our website, gbbnews.org.